Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. But for how much longer? According to some, liberal democracy is dying. In an age of instability, does authoritarianism offer people something more comforting? And does that mean that everything we held dear is slipping away? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'll be discussing that cheery topic with Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel, and our guest today, Yashin Monk who is Executive Director of Renewing the Centre at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, host of the Good Fight podcast, and author of the new book, The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. In 1989, Francis Fukuyama wrote The End of History, which argued that the fall of communism heralded not just the end of the Cold War, but the advent of the supremacy of liberal democracy. The Western governments had not just won on a practical basis, but the concepts of democracy and free speech had won hearts and minds. But less than 30 years on, a series of surprise populist victories across the globe have thrown that all in doubt. So, Yasha, if we can start with you... Brexit, Trump, recently the League and Five Star Coalition in Italy and mainstream social democracy falling all over Europe. Is all of this connected? I think it is. Um, you know, when you see a political system like liberal democracy being incredibly stable for decades and then suddenly undergoing these convulsions very quickly, the only way to make sense of it is to think of it in comparative perspective. And this is something that, that I do in my book, but I think is really important because you know, whichever country I go to, I'm given a slightly different idiosyncratic story about what might explain the particular misfortune that has befallen it. So in the United States, it's, you know, the Republican Party having radicalized over many years, starting with Newt Gingrich in the 90s. When I go to Germany, it's sort of the opposite. It's, oh, the problem is that Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats are so moderate, and so that leaves a lot of space on the right of politics. And that's why the alternative for Germany is now getting really strong. And that doesn't seem to me to make sense. So we got to look at some of the basic facts, which is that Populism has been rising not just since 2016, but for a long time. It's actually been rising pretty steadily since the year 2000, um, growing from about 8% virtue then to over 25% of a virtue now, more than doubling the number of governments it has and so on and so forth. 
and it's been growing in all of these different countries. And so I think we have to both understand the ways in which it's connected, what actually makes the word populist coherent, and some of the common drivers that explain how this can be happening in such different contexts. So what do you mean when you say populism? Is it always anti-immigration? That seems to be a, a common thread of it. A lot of the populists are anti-immigration, but I don't think that's necessary. And, and you're right to pose the question, because in some obvious ways, populists don't have much in common. Um, as you may have noticed, uh, the president of the United States is not uh, especially fond of Muslims. But the president of Turkey, who's also often called a populist, Recep Erdogan, is not especially fond of anybody who's not a Muslim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there are some populists who are very right-wing on the economy, um, cutting the welfare state and so on. But there's others who are actually far left on the economy. When you think of uh, somebody who was uh, once upon a time uh, glorified by a former mayor of London, Hugo Chavez, he was very left-wing on the economy. Um, so, and, in, so, and in Italy, those two bits are about to form a government together. Absolutely. So the Five Star uh, Movement, which is now forming a government with a deeply xenophobic Northern League, I mean, they really make Nigel Farage look like a sort of liberal guardian reader. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the Five Star Movement is not in any straightforward sense left-wing now, but it very much was when it was founded. Mm. It was a left-wing comedian railing against the center-right and quite populist in itself government of Silva Berlusconi. And the five stars are all pretty left-wing demands from public ownership of facilities like water to more investment in public transport rather than private cars to a sort of somewhat questioning attitude about economic growth, talking about degrowth and so on. It was a relatively straightforwardly left-wing set of demands. And over time, it became much more right-wing. So to, the question to is... The, what, to the point where Silvio Berlusconi has offered his... Is help to the uh, the coalition government in in Italy. I think. How much do you think the Brexit movement? You've mentioned Nigel Farage already. How much does that fulfil this populist model? Do you think? So I would distinguish between two things there, right? Which is that I think that there are legitimate non-populist reasons to be in favour of Brexit. I don't buy those reasons personally, but I think there are ways of favouring Brexit that aren't necessarily populist. But what Brexit has done in this country is to channel all of the populist energy and a lot of the campaign for Brexit was deeply populist and the main reason why the Brexit campaign won was not you know either the sort of far right uh, set of ideas that uh, you know this is what's gonna what, you know the European Union is the only thing standing between the United Kingdom and the libertarian paradise that influenced you know some senior donors and politicians but very few ordinary people nor is it this sort of far left fantasy that the only thing that stands between Britain and socialism in one country is sort of uh, you know oppressive bureaucrats in Brussels again but I don't think that motivated more than one or two percent of the population. Some of them happen to be quite influential in the Labour Party, but that's another matter. Um, <laughs> what, what really motivated people is just, look, I've got enough, you know, things aren't really going right. I don't feel like these politicians are delivering for me, but we're kind of corrupt. Protest. And the people in Brussels are even worse. Yeah. And, you know, there's all these immigrants coming in that's somehow connected to the EU as well in a way I'm not entirely sure of, but never mind. You know, let's just vote against them. Exactly. Yeah, just a, it's a protest. So, Alison, Richard, how much do you recognise that as a as a the way that British politics is at the moment? Uh, well, I think it's a a pretty good picture. Um, I think that the far right and the hard right have really called the tunes, and you know, as has just been described, some on the far left have become their useful idiots as well. And I think that kind of dominating of our political scene by people who are 
you know, breaching norms of political culture, you know, whether that's by and large that your politics should be associated with the truth and facts and the reality, or whether that's the idea that the majority doesn't just dominate by force, but rather you go through a process by which minority views are respected and included and treated properly. I think that's absolutely what we're living through and it's a turbulent world. The only thing I would say different to that or, or, or add into the debate is I think what the populist successfully does is two things. One, offer a better yesterday. And at the moment you're seeing in Britain, people are offering different yesterdays and kind of come out in a kind of pretty bad score draw in the 2017 election. It was good for each of the individual parties, but just as encumbered politics um, ever since because of it. And I think that's what you often see. It seems to be what's happening in Italy. It seems to be what's happening in America, etc. Is there's a kind of uh, the past is the uh, is the offer, but it's a kind of cherry picked past that arguably didn't ever exist. And if you really gave people the option of that, I don't think they would go for it. The second is, and Phil Collins said this when he was on the podcast some time ago, is that the successful populist gets their supporters to suspend their judgment temporarily and invest in the populist leader who they trust and therefore lets them guide for them. And what I think is kind of interesting about that in our current times is that often the person who does that has a kind of high level of credibility with a certain group of people and feel that they've held consistent views for a very long period of time, but they're not necessarily what you would write up that person to do. So the fact that Donald Trump is from liberal New York, but is holding some of these views, there's a kind of rupture to that that I think the fact gives that, some people the benefit of the doubt. The fact that Nigel Farage is actually a wealthy stockbroker, exactly. but the speaks for, you know... And the fact that Jeremy Corbyn down the is, pub. is one of the nicest men you could meet personally, but has got a politics that is clearly kind of envious and has sadly been a bystander on stuff like anti-Semitism. But it's very hard to believe that about him when you meet this guy who is really affable and really nice. So he was able to do something that someone like John McDonnell, who feels more gruff politically, was unable to do. And I think that's that's my sense about where the populist becomes successful. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that go beyond that. So one of them is just that we always underestimate to what extent outrage at real breaches of, of, of norms and, and, and often decency perpetrated by populists serves them. And one way of interpreting that is that, you know, when Donald Trump goes and he refuses to condemn racists or, you know, mocks a disabled reporter and things like that. One interpretation of that is, well, apparently most Americans are racist. Apparently they all hate disabled people. I don't think it's true. I think often a lot of his supporters even are actually quite appalled by some of those kinds of comments. But they really hate the existing political class and the establishment. Mm. And so when a comment that they may actually disapprove of has the result of making everybody they hate condemn the guy. Mm -hmm. They say, well, you know what? If all of those people hate you, there must be something kind of right about you. Yeah, yeah I think that's absolutely right. I think that sometimes, you know, Nigel Farage has said stuff that makes you absolutely, you know, your stomach turn. But the fact is me saying, well, that's not the sort of conversation we want to have in British politics will make people say, well, who are you to tell me what sort of conversation we can or can't have in British right, politics? Right. Even if they themselves probably in their heart of hearts would never say that to a member of their family or whatever. I think that's that's probably true. And it and it actually, from the point of view of a serving politician, puts you in a no-win situation, which is exactly why they do it. Because they know there's then then I am silenced yeah, effectively. Yeah. 
absolutely. And, and and the other thing I think is that it's sometimes tempting to think of the sort of competition between more establishment politics and almost more sensible politics and establishment is a bad word, I think, in various ways. And the populist as a competition between sort of do the public buy their policy ideas or the policy ideas of other politicians. And I don't think that's actually the competition. There's always some people, you know, certainly populists make these huge oversized promises. You know, Donald Trump is somehow going to deliver, you know, cheap, wonderful healthcare for everybody. And when they get into office and they say things like, oh, who knew that things could be so complicated? So there's always some people who are really the sort of useful idiots who, who fall for any claim. But I don't think that's actually the core of their voters. I think a lot of the voters realize they're not really going to do anything for you. And so it's a competition between more more traditional politicians actually being able to persuade the population that they're going to do something for them. And the populists who basically say, ah, don't believe a word about any of these people. They're all lying to you. And you know mm. what? I'm probably not going to improve your life that much anyway. I don't quite say that up front, but we sort of both know that's true. But at least I tell the truth about the people you hate. Yeah. Right? And so it's not a competition between different policy visions. It's a, it, it, the challenge for more responsible politicians is not how do I persuade people that my policies are better than the policies of a populist. It's how do I persuade people that there's anything that politics can actually still do to improve their lives. And if they believe that, I think they tend to stick with more moderate politicians. If they don't believe that, then they're always going to vote for populists. And it's a kind of psychological thing about that person. It's something about how they're feeling about life, that actually it's just so unlikely that politics is going to improve where they are. What's the incentive for them to believe in any rational, reasonable politician? Exactly. How long do we think that this sentiment that fuels this kind of populism has been around? Because it feels like maybe 2008 would be a good place to start, but it seems like we've only been having this conversation in the past couple of years or so, despite the fact that, you know, in in 2009, one of my representatives in the European Parliament was a, a genuine fascist in, in Nick Griffin. So is it about 10 years or is it a kind of, was it a slow burner from the effects of the financial crash, do you think? Yeah, sure, if we slowly do. Yeah, so I think when you look at the data, it's quite clear that it started a long time ago. You know, as I was saying earlier, in 2000, the average virtue of a populist was 8% in Europe, which is not nothing. And it's spread uh, to over 25% now. And and there's no clear moments in the line where it shifts. It's not 2008. It's not sort of 2016. It started before those dates and it continued right after them. So the way that I make sense of that in the book is through sort of structural drivers, which have been going on in the background for a long time. And one of them is the stagnation of living standards for ordinary citizens. But sort of, you know, all of us sitting in this room are, are, are pretty young, which is a nice change from <laughs> the kinds of events I often go to. And I don't think any of us feel that over the course of our lifetimes, you know, perhaps individually we've done okay, but but that sort of, you know, how much money we make, our friends make, the kind of life we get to lead is, you know, fundamentally better than that of our parents or grandparents' generation. And that's the same in the United States, in, in, in continental Europe. And then the second thing is um, the slow transition from a set of mono-ethnic, monocultural countries or countries that had that self-conception to more multi-ethnic ones, which, you know, again, I think everybody in, in, in this room and probably most of the people listening to this embrace and celebrate. But it is a uniquely, a historically unique experiment. We've never seen a democracy undergo that transition. And some people have something to lose from that because they had a status advantage in saying, ah, perhaps I'm not 
you know, the, the richest guy in the country, the most successful guy in the country, perhaps I don't get the most social respect, but you know what? At least I'm quote unquote better than, than, than those immigrants over there, right? At least I'm better than people who are from outside the country. And thankfully, it's not as easy to claim that status advantage now. But, but that means that people have something to lose and they rebel against it. Uh, and for we don't have to condone that. In fact, we shouldn't condone that. It shouldn't surprise us. And then the third thing that sort of, you know, adds to that cocktail is the rise of social media, which then just makes it easier for outsiders to circumnavigate gatekeepers, um, often fight for, for good things. I shared a stage a couple of days ago with one of the survivors of a horrible school shooting in Florida who's managed to, to skyrocket to national attention because he's been an admirable and outspoken in his fight for gun control. He would not be a national figure if it wasn't for social media and so on. But it obviously also allows people to, to spread hatred and, and, and false information and so on on social media. And coming on top of those other two long-term drivers, that makes a very dangerous cocktail in my mind. We should probably take a quick break just there, but next we'll be talking about plenty more stuff, including where the Labour Party fits into this whole populist mess. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm June Sarpong. And if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate or review it on iTunes because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. Next, I want to start with essentially the biggest question that we have today. How worried should we be about the death of liberal democracy? Did the election of Donald Trump to the highest office essentially in the world a couple of years ago ruin this completely? Is it now impossible to stop? I think we should be very worried, but not fatalistic. So, you know, you mentioned Fukuyama earlier and obviously he had the idea of the end of history. But in some ways that thesis was much more consensual than people who sort of sometimes scoffed at that formula might suggest. So in the 1990s, it was completely common sense within political science that countries that were very affluent, but had changed governments for free and fair elections a couple of times, were safe. Places like the United Kingdom and Germany, the United States, obviously would never see the rise of somebody who truly disrespects the most basic rules and norms of our political system. 
Well, now we see that that's no longer true, that we have somebody as president of the United States who is severely attacking, ferociously attacking uh, the separation of powers and the rule of law, the independence of institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice. We're seeing in a country like Italy a, a, a very worrying postmodern parody of a red-brown pact taking power deeply hostile to representative institutions. And the clearest case is Hungary, which is a country which on the criteria of that paper from the 1990s should be consolidated democracy. We shouldn't have to worry about it. And yet we see that a democratically elected populist um, has destroyed the freedom of the press and uh, the independence of the judiciary uh, and even the electoral system to such an extent that we can barely still call it a democracy. So it, it's obviously possible for democracies to fail that political scientists until five or ten years ago thought were safe. And it's driven by these deep structural factors that I described. So it's not going to be easy to address those. But we retain a lot of agency. Unlike the citizens of some of those countries, we, we have a freedom to fight for our values. And moderate parties, where they are still in power, have the ability to actually go and, and have sensible policy change that counteracts those drivers. So um, I can't promise anybody a happy end, but it's up to what we do. And the good things about elections is there's always another one. Well, not always, as we see in places like, like Hungary and Venezuela, but for now we have but, some more to... But whilst there is, there's hope, right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. like Trump, in the case of Trump, for example, I, I would completely understand Democrats, especially feeling like it is not certain that we can beat this guy the next time, but it's at least possible that they can. And that then completely changes the narrative. And, you know, you've got the possibility of, uh, of complete change again. Yep. And I, I, you know, I have, I completely appreciate what you say about like, in the end, the worrying thing is that the populists take away that, but whilst it's still there, there's, there's real hope that you can sort it out. And what we're seeing in lots of countries is that the first time that you run against a populist government, you still have a pretty decent chance of beating them. It's not always a completely free and fair elections, but they're usually free, but mostly fair. By the time that you're running against an incumbent populist movement, the second or third time, the deck is usually stacked against you in a pretty heavy way. So that's why the midterms coming up from the United States in November of, of this year, 2018, and then certainly the, the re-election of Donald Trump in 2020 are of really existential importance. Yeah. That yeah. seems really interesting about British politics is that the people who seem to be trying to use this upsurge in populism tend to be the kind of people who've been around Westminster for decades. Should maybe we be slightly thankful for uh, first past the post or whatever kind of system has allowed that to be a bulwark against, you know, people just coming in willy-nilly? It's true in the sense they've been around for a long time, but Donald Trump was a pre-establishment figure in America. That's, these aren't new figures. Uh, Nigel Farage has had a, a long burn to get to the kind of peak that he got to. Jeremy Corbyn had been in Parliament since 83. You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is from this kind of ridiculous aristocratic family. Like, none of them are, are new to it, but I don't think that's why they're good at populism or or, or bad, or somehow even protected from worst populists. You know, the worst populist on the left would be Galloway, and he has had parliamentary success from an extreme party on the left uh, rather than in a big one. So I don't think that necessarily. And UKIP sometimes come close and do well in MEP elections. So I don't think. I, th that. I think the only. I think the only difference is that you know in the British system you need six hundred and fifty candidates, and that that's that's some sort of challenge to 
you know, not not having a presidential election in that way, that is some sort of challenge to it. Um, but in the end, you know, yes, systems dictate the kind of politics you do to a certain extent. But the fact is, and I think this is what you're saying, is like, yes, m- you know, most things are contextual in some sense, but actually there is something bigger going on here across liberal democracies. Yeah. And what I find striking, I mean, you know, I'm a political scientist by training and you know, political science has had for the last many decades now a sort of institutionalist turn. So, you know, for a long time, didn't really think very much about the way in which institutions shape outcomes. They thought more about, you know, structural factors like economic growth and so on. And a new generation said, no, no, it's all about the institutions. And we really always have to think about everything through the way in which institutions shape um, incentives and so on. Um, and what's actually striking about populism is the degree to which institutions don't quite explain populism. So early on, there was an argument that, you know, proportional representation systems are really bad for populism because you don't have as much of a wasted vote problem. So as long as you have, as soon as you have, you know, seven or ten percent of a vote, you get to have a real parliamentary presence and some state funding and all of those things. And you can feed on that and you keep growing. And so first past the post is much better because you know those ten percent of people can sort of ignore. Well, but it turns out that as you go from 0 to 10% of populist support has no impact in a first-past-the-post system, as you go from 20 to 30%, they can suddenly have a majority. Mm. And even if they don't have institutional representation for a political party, you can then see some of that energy coming out for a referendum. So I think what we've seen is actually a remarkable ability of water to find its level when it comes to populism. In various ways, populists have been able to break through and certainly the institutions have shaped what that looks like in a first-past-the-post system, it means that establishment parties are taken over by populists. In a system of proportional, proportional representation, it means that populist parties rise and establishment parties fall in vote share. But in one way or the other, the populists manage to infect the, the system. Is Emmanuel Macron a populist? So I've never quite heard the argument for that made convincingly. I mean, so so what I mean by a populist is somebody who basically says the existing political elites are completely corrupt and self-serving. Politics is at its heart really simple. It's completely straightforward to solve all these problems. All we need is that somebody who truly speaks for the people uh, goes in and solves everything. I am your voice, as Donald Trump said. Um, And that anybody who disagrees with them is by the nature of that disagreement illegitimate, right? If you are against Brexit, then you are... An it, enemy it of the people, like as the papers say. And and I think he, he fits a couple of those things. I mean, he certainly fits talking about the the corruption of the French political elite. Uh, as did Beppe Grillo. Well, I mean, to some degree, they were both right. I mean, you know, Macron would not be present today if his main right-wing competitor, François Fillon, had not paid his family members in a very dubious way, right? So so he is populist in that sense, but, but I think there the populist analysis, you know, in, to varying degrees in different countries and so on, is not entirely of a war. But I don't think he does any of the other things. I think actually Macron says, you know, the reforms we've got to do are pretty complicated and, and, and hard. And I'm honest about that and I'm going to try and make them. I don't know that what he's doing is right in every respect, but I think he's upfront about the fact that it's complicated. And I don't think he says that anybody who disagrees with me is an enemy of the French people or illegitimate. In fact, he stands up to that kind of rhetoric when it comes from the Front National, and I don't think he engages in it himself. So, so I don't quite see what makes him a populist. And there's something, there is something inherently nationalist about populism, isn't there? Because it's that point about needing to have an enemy, and we are the we are the patriotic, true representation of our country, and those who don't agree with us are the enemy. And you have to make it as stark as that, and as binary as that. 
And it can. I mean, look, in Venezuela, that was mostly sort of capitalists and business owners. It was also some degree, you know, of United States and so on. It wasn't sort of xenophobic in the way that a lot of right-wing populism is. But I think that's right. I mean, some people say, oh, some forms of left-wing populism are fine because they're not really against foreigners, because they're not really against the most vulnerable in society. But I think that overlooks how quickly left-wing populism can t- can take on those kinds of enemies. And that's what happens to the Five Star Movement, which was a seemingly benign left-wing populist movement to start off with. But then very quickly, it was like, well, you know what? It's actually more effective to have an enemy here. If everybody's shouting about immigrants, why don't we too make them our enemies? I think one thing that's interesting is Macron might be seen as populist on politicians, but he's not anti-politics. And Mm. I think that's absolutely crucial. He believes politics is the solution to many of these problems. And one of the things you see here with all these people setting up new parties, obviously I don't agree with that, but I think they all start from the wrong place in that they are anti-politics often in their pursuit, is they think somehow you've got to kind of you know, politics has somehow failed. And I don't believe that's the answer. I think that there's, it might have failed a particular policy question at a given time, but politics is invariably um, the solution to the problems that our country finds ourselves in. Uh, the other thing, the thing that Macron has in common with populists is that promise to replace a political class. So Donald Trump obviously had his drain the swamp. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn here wants to deselect MPs, or that was certainly part of his starting position when he came into the leadership. And Macron literally replaced two parties um, and it was clever that he did it. Half his party wasn't allowed to have been in politics before, etc. But I think it's that difference between, they're not anti-politics. I think that's really, really uh, crucial. There's a really good quote on this that I read earlier. It may even have been from you, Yesha, I can't can't remember, but it's essentially saying that... um, There's some good quotes that are not from (laughs) (laughs) you. Essentially, normal politicians will say... they have adversaries that is someone that they want Mm, to beat Uh, but populists will say that they have enemies something that they must destroy and that seems like a really interesting dichotomy yeah that that, that quote comes from my book though in turn i'm citing michael ignatieff um the great political theorist and former not very successful uh leader of a canadian liberal party who is now actually the president of Central European University trying to stop it from being shut down, which is located in Budapest, trying to stop it being shut down by Viktor Orban. But he makes this important distinction that, um, look, in politics, you want to win. And you think that it's important to win. Otherwise, why are you in it? You think it's important that your side of the debate uh, carries the day. And that's good. And there's nothing wrong with having some pretty uh, strong hustle between political parties. But you've got to make the distinction between these guys are my adversaries and they are my enemies. Because an adversary is somebody who you can bear to live under for four or five years because you know you then have another chance to oust them the next time. Uh, an enemy is somebody who you have to destroy or will come and destroy you. Um, and, you know, I think one of the important moments when that was respected in the right way was by uh, John McCain, who's, who's now very sick, as, as, uh, as you all know. Um, when he was running against Barack Obama in 2008. And in one of his last campaign appearances, a woman in the audience stood up and said, you know, uh, Barack Obama is an Arab and I'm really scared of what will happen if he becomes president of my country. Right? And McCain said, to his great honor, uh, look, I disagree with Obama on many things. right? I think I'd make a better president. But I've got to tell you, uh, you know, Barack Obama is a decent man. And if he becomes president of the United States, you don't have to be worried for your country. 
that was precisely policing the border between mm. he's my adversary, I desperately want to win against him, but he's not my enemy. Uh, and populists never draw that distinction. It's, never draw that distinction. And that is so crucial. It's really, it's really hard to explain. Just this afternoon, I was on the radio with Ian Duncan Smith and the conversation started up with um, the the presenter on Five Live talking about football. Ian Duncan Smith plays for the men's MPs football team and Tracy Crouch, Tracy is a Tory and Tracy Crouch and I have just been involved in the setting up of a women's MPs football team mainly because it's a stress thing like we 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 need to do more exercise in here <laughs> because we need to like run out our stress right so we're trying to do this good thing and it's cross-party and that's fine and so we're being asked about you know cross-party type stuff by this person uh, the presenter and Ian Duncan Smith is sat there and I'm not going to fudge it right because he's made my constituents poor there are people in my constituency who his policies have made poor, but we nonetheless have to conduct the conversation as people who also think that by and large, politicians should try and be each other's adversaries and not deal in the kind of uh, hatred that has really weakened our country. And that's really hard because mm. even in that moment, and I can hear him sort of like talking about sort of cross-party stuff. I want to say to him, yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm not angry with you. But you're right. It's like, but at all, at all times, you have to be so careful about where that line is between legitimate distress that needs to be represented and putting the other side, you know, in the camp of being an enemy. And it's fine, by the way, to be angry. I mean, I think, you know, if I get one robust criticism of my work from the left, it's sort of, oh, you know, you're just too obsessed with rules and norms of a political system. And is there really anything to save? And isn't everything corrupt and terrible? And, you know, why shouldn't we just call for revolution and sweep it all aside? And why care about, you know, the rules and norms of liberal democracy? What on earth does that even mean? You know, why is that important relative to, you know, a policy that makes me poor or that discriminates against me or my friends or whatever it is, right? And that's a sort of misunderstanding of, of, of why it is that that, that scholars of democracy like me care about the rules and norms of liberal democracy. It's not that I say, you know, those are more important than the policies in some kind of abstract sense. It's that we need the rules and norms for us to be able to fight for the values that we ultimately care about, that ultimately are important in a peaceful manner. Because once we lose those rules and norms, it's not that they are more important in some abstract way than having the right policies on, 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 on the welfare state or on the NHS or anything like that, is that if we lose those, the only way to settle the difference that you have with Ian Duncan Smith is, is ultimately through a kind of civil war, is through, is through violent means. And that's going to bring a, a lot more suffering, a lot more death to a lot more people. So it's not that I care more about uh, sort of rules and norms of liberal democracy than I care about people being, you know leading a decent life or being poor, it's it's that I care about preserving the only way we have in which we can fight for our values in a peaceful manner. And it's not like you could it, you have to do the hate thing to be successful. Justin Trudeau was the kind of recent example of somebody, I think when he was asked about being conservative, it's like, well, that's just somebody we haven't yet convinced to be a liberal. And that kind of positive view that you can convince your friends and colleagues and neighbours who aren't yet uh, with you, the when that 
his crowd booed a, a journalist. He said, whoa, 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 we don't boo, boo journalists. They're here to ask the tough tr- questions. And if you're going to be a powerful people, you're going to get asked difficult questions. And that, uh, and we have the kind of opposite of that here. And it does feel that almost one of the challenges to winning back the Labour Party for the centre-left is there is a debate about are the Tories evil or are they wrong? And I think they're profoundly wrong about a number of things. And I, like Alison, could be quite angry about the things they've done, but I actually don't believe they're kind of wrong or poorly motivated on the most part. I think they are trying to make the best of this country. I just think they're really profoundly wrong about it. But there are just some people that are, they're evil. They want to see poor people die. They want to They want people to starve in the Wirral or whatever it might be, as if I, and I don't, there, there may be um, some people who are like that in the Conservative Party. I, so, I so, so one of the striking things, I, a few weeks ago, I was at the Ideas Conference of the Center for American Progress, um, which is a sort of center-left think tank in the United States. And, you know, it's called an Ideas Conference, but it's really a sort of, um, you know, some kind of, you know, yeah, I don't know, it's like a horse auction or something for like, which should be our horse for 2020? I mean, you know, who's <laughs> going to go and run? And so everybody it's from... It's like um, America's got talent, but for politicians. <laughs> yeah. Democrats have mediocre talent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, everybody, I mean, there's like, you know, 10 people who are going to run in 2020 there, you know, giving their little speeches. And what I was struck by is that from, you know, Bernie Sanders on the left of the party to people like Kirsten Gillibrand on the more sort of moderate wing of the party, they all actually had one thing in common, which is that they only spoke to people who already agreed with their conclusions. Mm, And all they said is, here's how committed I am to the conclusions. And virtually nobody, I can think of one, but virtually nobody made an argument for why we should buy those conclusions. Why I thought, look, I, I believed in most of the conclusions we were talking about and when I came in in the, in the morning. So I could nod along. But, but I never felt like if I didn't already believe this, at the end of that day, I would understand why I should believe it. Because nobody bothered to make that argument. Because you're only speaking to the people who are on our side, who are on the side of angels, who are virtuous, and why should we even bother speaking to the people who are evil? And, and, and that's a deep problem. And I, and I think that's where... You know, I do think that the, the process matters and your depiction of democracy as as the best means that we have to get what we want because the other means is violence and it's unthinkable. I think it's right. There's something that goes along with that, which, you know, I, I'll be quite honest, I think politicians necessarily of my generation, including myself, have done that well, which is craft. That is about the craft of making a persuasive argument and being prepared to put yourself in front of people who disagree with you. And if we're thinking about where we are and what the solutions to some of this are, I think that part of that is the acceptance of the need for more hard work. I want to finish on a positive note about what people can do. (laughs) (laughs) But first, (laughs) I actually want to bring up uh, one more negative thing, because this is actually my biggest fear about all of this, is that... Until not so long ago, I thought that liberal democracies were not just morally the best way to to run things, but I also thought that practically they were the best way to run things. If you looked at the big and mo- biggest and most powerful countries, they tended to be um, liberal democracies. And now, as all of this happens, I'm less convinced that that is true. And I think if you were a developing country with an emerging economy and you were looking at the international scene now, I think it would be 
really fair enough to look at authoritarian regimes like Russia and China and think that that might be the best way to run a country. Is that fair? I think there's something to what you're saying for I ultimately disagree, right? So um, in, in a piece that I recently published in, in Foreign Affairs with a colleague, Roberto Foro, we show that it's, you know, we, it's called the end of a democratic century. And uh, that's true for a number of reasons. One of which is that until, since the late 19th century, liberal democracies have always had a much greater share of the world's GDP than straightforward autocratic countries. Now that's no longer the case for the first time since the late 19th century. Depending exactly on how you count, it happened five years ago, it's happening today, it's happening in five years, but but somewhere in this decade, um, autocratic countries are going to um, overtake liberal democracies in terms of their GDP. That is a fundamental transformation in the balance of hard power eventually, uh, but also actually soft power um, in the world. And, and, and it's made worse by the fact that at the height of the economic performance of the Soviet Union, it had 50 or perhaps 60% of the GDP per capita. Now there are large swaths of autocratic countries, even large swaths of countries like China, that rival the average GDP in the European Union. So uh, we can see that autocratic countries can, in fact, provide the citizens with some amount of, of real wealth. And so whereas in 1970, you know, did people choose democracy for great idealistic reasons because they wanted individual liberty and collective self-rule? Yes, to some degree. But they also chose democracy because they thought that's how you have, you know, an American way of life in terms of affluence. East, and Berlin, that's how East you... Berlin, West Berlin as a direct comparator. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the famous line in 1989 among the protesters in, in, in the east of Germany, kommt die D-Mark bleiben wir, kommt sie nicht, gehen wir zu ihr, which is... If the Deutschmark, which is sort of a symbol of West German economic success, comes to us, we'll stay. If it doesn't, we'll go over to join it, uh, which expresses that exactly. So, so, so that is a fundamental challenge to, to how we're going to be able to advance the course of liberal democracy around the world and, and protect it in our own countries. But you also see how dysfunctional autocratic countries still are. Um, Russia has not invested in its people nearly as much as it should. It's reliant on, on gas and oil experts. China has, has done tremendously well, but you're starting to see some of the negative impact of, of a deep corruption in the country and so on and so forth. And as countries like the United States become more autocratic, you see what cost that actually has for the economy there, not only because the super rich capture the system and serve their own interests, but also because you see, you know, political interference with companies like Amazon and Time Warner, because you see um, a lot of American corporations being forced to pay bribes to Michael Cohen, to de facto bribes to Michael Cohen, the personal lawyer of Donald Trump. So I think in the long run, liberal democracies still perform better on those kinds of things. And, and people are going to grow impatient with the lack of liberty they have in places like Hungary. So I think, you know, perhaps that's the optimistic answer, but in the very long run, I'm still optimistic that democracy has something to offer, hmm. but other systems don't. But the competition is definitely much stiffer than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the people who I know who are most, who, who think most about populism, who worry most about it, who don't just see it as part of the natural way of um, that things will will go is actually people in the uh, economics uh, community because they literally can quantify the cost, right? Mm. So like the actual figure 
um, on the cost of the Trump uh, sanctions and tariff. Like these, these are uh, real features of the economic system now that are yeah. quantifiable and, you know, number hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So there is a real cost to people. And in the end, you know, I sort of think people don't like to be put on. They don't like to be dumped on. And the fact is that that people who don't respect the function of democracy end up dumping on people. And, and it can be long and difficult and painful, but I, you know, people want to have their say in the end. And uh, I think we have to be positive. The thing that we have to do is work out what are the what are the practical things that we have to get better at what are yeah, the thing yeah. what what's the practical function of working in and through elections to get better at this to win. My sense is authoritarians are short-term efficient in their kind of delivery of things, but the lack of innovation um, that that creates is ultimately going to be stifling for them uh, in the long run. And something that people can rally around and will want as that ability to hold different views, dissent. These are all things we actually really treasure. And I think hopefully eventually in places like Hungary and the United States or whatever, uh, and if we get to that point here, they would be points that you could rally around to organise the kind of counterinsurgency. Yep. Do you think that maybe we should just have more faith in ourselves in, in making these arguments and more faith in people to essentially agree with us? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think more faith in people to agree with us, but as you're saying, trying to convince them of it. Mm. I mean, I think what I hear a lot is, especially young people saying, well, you know, everything sucks. The system really hasn't done right by me. So, you know, let's try something new. How bad could things get? And of course, I sort of agree with a lot of that sentiment until that last sentence, right? <laughs> Just to say that, look, a lot of things do suck and we've got to improve them, right? But it could get a whole of a lot worse. And that's something that people no longer intuitively understand because we don't have, you know, fascism is very far away and the Soviet Union is very abstract. But in that sense, the rise of populism gives us an opportunity because you can suddenly see what it means to live in, in, in Russia, to live in Turkey, to live in Venezuela, even to live in places like Hungary and Poland. Syria. Syria, for sure. Um, and so, you know, you can actually win that fight, but you've got to want to fight it. You've got to want to explain to people and remind people why there is something, to lots of things to reform in our system, but also a lot to, to defend in our system. Um, but that's an argument that we need to actually go out and make, and, and far too often we don't. I think, I think that's true, because we're basically having another Cold War with the kind of influence of Russia and China, but I don't think the British public are particularly aware of it. And if they are i don't think they're very up for it and what that might mean in terms of us being waging our role in fighting for liberal democracies and our role in in the world in that way and i think that's a very big fear that i have with that negative ending i think we should uh, <laughs> we should wrap up we just just run out of time but yasha thank you so much for coming and joining us today this was a lot of fun Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question. So we mentioned Michael Ignatieff earlier, the former leader of the Canadian Liberal Party. So I thought I'd ask a question about Canadian politics. In 2008, Canadian Conservative Foreign Minister Maxime Bernier resigned after leaving sensitive NATO documents in the home of an ex-girlfriend who had links to which controversial group? Send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or tweet us at 
progress online. Please do leave an iTunes review for your chance to win, win a mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Yashin Monk joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we will respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.